Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast. We have a good interview today with Matthew Klippenstein about the EV market, uh, about Elon Musk, as well as a really not very publicized slaughter uh, bloodbath going on, as it's been written uh, inside the oil industry. Of course, your usual roundup of news as well. If you support the program and you like what we're doing, and more importantly, want us to do more of it, you can help us do that directly by becoming a Green Majority member today. You can sign up for as little a dollar a month. We would love it if you would consider maybe becoming a $5, 10 15 or $20 member. But if you want to just get your name in there and let us know that you care, you can sign up for $1. Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority and sign up today. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the program. listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm uh, i'm your host darren Kaster in studio again with stefan hostetter and sabina Hesseni. Um, i'm going to be taking a charge point as it were on our interview this week which is with matthew kleppenstein he is a uh, ev and electronic vehicle uh, expert in the sense that he uh, produces reports on uh, market trends uh, as well as just generally keeping up to date on the electrification industry uh, and we uh, we will likely uh, by extension of that, also talk a little bit about the oil industry uh, as well. So vehicle focus, as far as my interview today, uh, that will be in the middle of the program. However, Stefan and Sabina are going to be taking charge on the news portion, and I will hand it off right now to Stefan for your first section of news. Thank you so much. Uh, so I'm actually leaving much of the uh, part three of our ongoing 208-part series of Resisting Trump uh, to, to Sabina today. So instead... I am covering the ever, ever interesting uh, and attractive conversation of power and not the fun kind of like political power, which we often talk about, but, you know, just the more nitty gritty. So, you know, investments in solar and uh, and so where our Canadian economy can be going. Uh, so. Uh, bear with me. I promise it's very important, if not the uh, not the most attractive of topics, because there's sort of three coinciding stories, all of which have uh, a lead, lend themselves to sort of one overall conversation, which is really what what we will be doing uh, as Canadians over the next 10, 20 years about where our economy is going, uh, and then what that means in the short term in regards to how we re- react with with the Trump um, presidency, and also in the long term of, of, of where we see our economy being powered in the next 10, 20, 30 years. So... Begin, we've, you know, Darren in the past has, has already has highlighted the fact that Trudeau has come out and said that we need to start phasing out, or that, not start, that we need to at some point phase out the oil sands. Um, which again, if you understand climate science, is a very innocuous sentence. Arguably, it's an innocuous sentence if you understand that he left the timelines as open as as humanly possible. Um, I, I just want to note really quickly that that like that's in the sense of that like we're going to die someday. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, at some point, yeah, at some point, we will the, the oil sands will have no oil, so theoretically, we'll have to shut them down. Uh, there's hopefully a, a little, maybe even a slightly faster timeline than that. Uh, but basically, that conversation, uh, at least you know, to some extent, that was said by a, pres- a prime minister, um, which 
is honestly to which at least puts him slightly to the left of uh, of of many of the oil companies who are basically claiming that oil can last forever. Uh, there isn't actually, you know, it's very very rare to find an oil ahead of an oil company who's willing to say that oil will not last forever. Yeah, Justin Trudeau is literally saying the equivalent of uh, the sky is blue, and this is what's considered like progressive and lefty yeah uh, yet another uh, notch in the belt of uh, facts have a well-known liberal bias <laughs> um yeah so, so so what's interesting about that is is that you know we've talked a bunch about a, a bunch before on the show about how much the uh where oil will end up and, and sort of because everyone's just basically betting on when peak oil will happen uh it, it's it's a it's a matter of uh reality that at some point there will be less oil in the ground than oil we're currently burning and therefore there <laughs> it has to happen at some point and yet it seems consistently that the goal is really to see how long we can push that out rather than actually figure out how to transition but to move on, there's these three stories, and I want to go one by one by one to sort of to highlight exactly where this is going. Uh, and the first is 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 an interesting, very short little article uh, from the from National Observer about the former Exxon boss Rex Tillerson, um, in which after a short meeting with Christia, Christia Freeland, uh, she said that he will be good for Canada. Uh, the The National Observer followed up. Uh, followed up on uh, with with uh, Christia Freeland and and the government of Canada to find out if any part of that conversation included the words climate change uh, and did not get a response by the time that this was that this was posted or that we've aired. So as we stands now, we don't know what the context of good for Canada is. But you know, when you're talking about the former boss of Exxon and whether or not uh, he's going what, what he means for Canada and the economy and everything else, you can't help but think. That what she's referencing, of course, is is pipelines. Uh, you know, she uh, Tillerson is in the position to determine whether or not uh, whether or not the uh, Keystone XL pipeline goes through, um, and and many other sort of infrastructure projects of that nature, as long as they cross the border or the border of the United States. And so, when you say someone's going to be good for Canada, we, all all we hear is what you're saying is that you that that oil is going to be a big part of Canada's future, uh, and we need to keep investing in it. And that's what the sport is. That's what that's the spot. That's the the way it's read by us. I guess I'll say. Now, I want to take a second uh, to call out that at this point, one thing that we often don't give, uh, we don't we don't lend ourselves too often to on the show, uh, or in re- and thus then, or in reality, the world itself doesn't lend, is the idea that pol- politician, politicians can just be scared. And in part, when I read this, uh, a bit of me wondered if the quote unquote good for Canada was that Christia Freeland sat down with Rex Tillerson and he was like, don't worry, Trump won't do anything too ridiculous. And that was the entire conversation. Um, because the way that some of the comments that she says, this one quote is, um, uh, is, a quote, is, I want to underscore that Secretary Tillerson is someone who knows Canada very well and in particular has a very strong understanding of the mutual benefits of the Canada-U.S. relationship and I think will be a good partner for us. I just want to highlight the idea of the word mutual there because uh, because earlier this week, Trump hung up on about six different world leaders or at least, well, Trump hung up on Australia last week. I believe this week uh, he he bowed to the power of China uh, and accepted the one China policy and then told Putin that he that he didn't like the Russia deal because that was a bad deal that Obama uh, had decided. So there is a, un, a part of me wants to understand this in a larger context of, you know, when you're dealing with someone like Trump, 
just having a rational conversation with a human in administration must feel at least a little bit secure, <laughs> must feel a little bit better. Um, now, again, that is not to say that uh, that this is a statement we would uh, that I'm really stoked to hear about, uh, given the fact that this conversation can only really be underhood, un- understood and heard through this lens of pipelines. Uh, so. With that, uh, with that, uh, so moving on to the second conversation, uh, which is another article from the Vancouver Observer, which is titled "How Trump May Spur Canada to Up Its Game on Climate Change." And again, what's interesting about this is it's kind of aspirational. The article it's not actually saying that we're actually going to do that. It's more saying like, "Hey, maybe this, maybe the being scared of Trump will make me, will mean we'll do something." Um, and so, like, yes, that would be great. Uh, and you know there are we have set in place some things that could lead to that sort of a- effort, uh, but in terms of actual things we've done, very similarly actually to the uh, to the sort of you know pleasant tweets Justin Trudeau has tweeted out about about accepting more refugees while also accepting no more refugees, the this sort of idea of like maybe something good will happen even though bad things are currently happening is a. <sighs> You know, isn't the most uh, convincing uh, of of reasons to feel good about the world right now. Um, this idea that you know that we need a better, stronger reaction uh, from our government into response to worse actions from other people is is aspirational until we actually see some real action. So you know, the tr- the tr- next Trudeau budget comes out pretty soon, and I sincerely hope that we might see some of that actual sort of uptick of action. One of the ways that this highlighted that we could actually help foster this um, is actually by selling a lot of our renewable energy actually into the states. Some jurisdictions in Canada already do that. Uh, but again, that sort of Canada is in a Canada is a is a microcosm of the amount of energy required uh, by the United States. So yes, we can help green some places, uh, or at least like some of our excess hydro can go into you know can can maybe offset some coal plants and stuff like that. Um, now of course it should be re- recognized that hydro is great after it's built, but is incredibly problematic while it's being built in many places. Uh, see the Site C Dam for as a reference point for that, uh, and especially when you understand full cost carbon. You know, once it's running, yes, that's great. But that's you know, if you clear cut of multiple forests and dam the ecosystem, the actual actual carbon benefit is much harder to understand. Which again is part of actually this larger conversation understanding of 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 power and and, and of of energy, I guess, and, and how its climate benefits are. You know, every reaction, every solar panel is, well, what's its full cost accounting um, and everything like that. And so every one of these is, is so site-specific uh, that the conversation needs to be deeper than just it's renewable or not. Yeah, and I, d- I just want to jump in. Like, this is, a, this is a really important point when it's coming to when we're talking about, like, public policy, just, like, generally, right? Because the full cost accounting is something is something that is almost never done. Like conceptually, as far as like a a, a uh, policy, uh, in from like area, th- this isn't like part of the decision making process, right? There's no standard council for full cost accounting of policies. There's no there's no equivalent of the uh, you know Office of Government Ethics or something like that, or or uh, any of those uh, um, economic review panels that the Americans have. I, I'm not aware. I apologize my ignorance here. Uh, I'm not aware if Canada has anything equivalent, but in neither country is there any equivalent where any of this goes through any scientist, right? So the next time you know you're reading an article or you're here listening to some right wing politician and they're giving you this arrogant, condescending sneer about oh you you know. 
know, idealistic environmentalists, you know, sure, all this kissing frog stuff is really, really nice. But at the end of the day, this is what's best for Canada is they don't know that. And and telling them and pointing out to them that they've never done the accounting and that they can't even make that statement, that even if we accept all of their arguments that you, you can't you can't the, the conclusion does not follow from the evidence submitted is because they haven't done the work, right? They, so uh, that, that in itself, the fact that this full cost accounting hasn't been done is not evidence that they're wrong, but they have yet to present evidence that they're right. And that's the important part because they're looking to make policy based on, at best, at best, guesses. Yeah. Um, and I think the, yeah, like uh, uh, there's a level of, of work being done on particular places to understand different pieces of full cost accounting. But again, full cost accounting is also really, really difficult. You know, it's one of those things where even if you do a, a, a it becomes, a, it comes down to the sort of understanding of trying to actually figure out the complexities of this world, which we fully accept that we can't do. You know, uh, for a long time, uh, a response to how to, how to protect the environment was to mo- try to understand the monetary benefit of all of these different parts of the environment, which then comes down to the central fact of that we just don't know enough about our natural world to be able to do this. Um, and you get to a point where, you know, at some point there's the, you know, you get into, it's, People are scared of these conversations, I think, because at some point you get too big and you get into, you know, metaphysics and ethics to some extent, you know. At some point it's like, well, what is the price point you put on making an entire species go extinct? Uh, what is the price point of, you know, uh, of increasing acidity in the oceans to an extent in which it's uninhabitable for many of these things? Um, and then what is the price point of, of, of ultimately making our world in, uninhabitable? Uh, which is the ultimate question, right? There's, you know, the, the, and and it's sort of it's funny because the quote unquote a consistent detraction, I guess, uh, on the environmental movement is that we're not serious um, or we don't understand the seriousness uh, of business. And and t- to be fair, the environmental movement is rife uh, with misunderstanding, uh, you know, econ- economics, uh, misunderstanding, um, uh, different interactions, even our own interactions with the natural world. You know, the number of the vaccination denying people who exist who probably agree with me on pipelines is, is, is massive. Um, and, and that's just a fact. And, 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 and the amount that we're, that we are rife with the naturalistic fallacy of presuming that just quote unquote nature is better, um, is, 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 is equal as well. Um, and so I'm not trying to say here that the environmentalists don't have their flaws, but I think more often than not, the sort of that all environmentalists get get painted with this brush of not understanding um, uh, uh, economics or not understanding the quote unquote serious parts of this of this conversation. Yeah, and just one really quick thing on that as well is that's really really important, right? And so yeah, I mean, you the individuals making the arguments aren't important. Right, that's an argument from authority. It works the other way around too. You can't dissuade, you can't dismiss someone's argument because they don't. The, the arguments stand or fall on their own merits. Right, the person presenting them is irrelevant. I don't care if it's it's Albert Einstein or the guy who made my you know bad coffee this morning. It, it doesn't matter. The arguments stand and fall on its own merits. But here's where that full cost accounting thing because it's really important, Stefan, that you pointed this out. Full cost accounting is incredibly hard to do, and nigh potentially in some cases next to impossible to do completely. But here's the important point, right? And, and so what people will tell you is, well, we can't proceed with decision-making if we have to full-cost accounting everything. Fair point. Here's the counter-argument, though. When we're looking at things like renewable energy versus oil, there's a, there's a degree of unknowns, right? There, there are a number of unknowns when we uh, do, uh, for instance, a, a big push on, on doing renewable energy. We have a lot more certainty about the economics of both of those things. But the environmental uh, 
downsides are exponentially more when we start playing with the uh, Russian roulette of climate change, right? So yes, we cannot have perfect information in either case. But in one case, there's a hell of a lot more unknowns, and that makes it exponentially more uh, possible that something could go wrong. And that's the, that's the cost-benefit analysis. That's the risk assessment, is the number of unknowns and the degree of damage if you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And, and, so, and I think that's the – and, 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 and there's the, that part of that conversation and the part of understanding for cost accounting leads to this point in which you get to a point where – because you can't speak authoritatively, because a big part of this is understanding our limitations of understanding, uh, you get swept under the rug because you end up having to be like you, have to, you end up opening the conversation to these wider conversations of like at some point we have to not have oil, and it's like well that's not an answer to what the problem is, and you're like you're I, I'm that's true, but that doesn't mean that that's not still the problem that we actually have to face. You know, just saying that your future world is less certain than my current world isn't a useful co- argument about. The, about where we stand, uh, which leads me finally to uh, a mildly depressing, but I think actually ultimately important to face and then have a conversation about article uh, once again from the National Observer. We stole three. I, I stole three from them to the, this week. Uh, but why Canada's clean energy investment plummeted in 2016? And so this is for the second consecutive year uh, that investment in in renewable energy or clean energy, sorry, uh, it dropped. This year it went down. It, it was down by forty six percent in twenty sixteen uh, to, to two point four billion dollars U.S. and it's the lowest point uh, since two thousand five. However, uh, and that that headline is one of those things that would be you know thrown up on Breitbart as like clean energy sector dying, climate change hoax solved by Trump. Uh, but what's interesting is that you read to the people who actually know what they're talking about, and there's a much different conversation. Uh, you know, industry stakeholders uh, are are not actually scared. Uh, of this, uh, of or not, I'm not surprised at least in this decrease, uh, mainly because uh, the wind energies were being built uh, on the basis of a, of long-term power ing- purchasing agreements, and and some of those are signed and then built and then and then and now more have to be built signed and built later again, right? And so there's level of which. It's not this like suddenly a ton of people stopped trying to, to buy renewable energy. Um, it's just that a lot of the different ways pricing went happened. And so we, uh, being tied to our due diligence, knowing our limitations of not fully understanding what this might mean, uh, reached out to our resident economist, Tim Nash, uh, to get a quote from him about what he sort of his understood about this renewable investment drop. Uh, and this is his quote. Uh, big point here is that the global capacity is up. Uh, it's getting so cheap and so fast that money isn't necessarily the best measure of growth in renewables. With demand lower than supply in Ontario, I'd expect to see heavier investments in utility-scale storage, like Hydro Store, in the coming years. And with revenues from cap-and-trade coming in, I'd also expect to see some R&D rise into things that increase demand for electricity, like, le- like electric cars and off-grid renewable energy systems for northern communities. And What's interesting about that and important to mention about that is, uh, A, the, the stats back up, back them up, uh, in that, in, that actually installation is, remains to be increasing, despite the fact that the actual co- invested money is decreasing, uh, which in part means that we're just, that if, as it gets cheaper, that can, that can happen. Uh, but also what's important to note is that one big part of the renew- renewable energy future is dramatically more efficient 
appliances and utilities. And so we should expect and hope to see actually demand decrease to some extent um, rather than uh, rather than increase. Uh, or, or, or rather, we can't expect constantly growth. That's part of what the whole conversation is here about the economy generally is we can't expect an ever-ending growth, uh, although I did write a five-part piece that Tim suggested to implying that maybe we could in a very weird way that we wouldn't really understand as we go along. However, that is our energy update uh, for the time being. Uh, I'm going to throw it to our tech today to both introduce uh, the song we're listening All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm going to be speaking now to uh, Matthew Klippenstein, who is joining us uh, to talk about uh, ostensibly electric vehicles. Uh, Welcome uh, to The Green Majority, Matthew. Uh, Thanks again, Darren. Great to be back. Uh, now, uh, Matthew, we've had you on the phone uh, uh, before to talk about this topic, and uh, in my in my r- uh, attempt to read the mountain of links that you sent this morning, I forgot to actually <laughs> copy my link of your introduction. So, would you please cover oh. for my oversight and 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 more properly introduce yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. No worries. Um, my name is Matthew Klippenstein. I'm a chemical engineer turned a renewable energy consultant, and I've also chronicled the Canadian electric vehicle scene for GreenCarReports.com for the past. I guess four, 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 five years, something like that. Um, so yeah, we I have a a, a database, uh, a Google document basically that anyone can access if they want to check out the staff uh, on a monthly basis, and that's at uh, tinyurl.com/slash/CanadaEVSales. Awesome. And uh, it's it's basically my effort to uh, make some of this data transparent because you know it's useful and uh, it's it's nice to be able to uh, check in on these things if if that's what uh, if that's what tickles your fancy, and it happens to tickle mine. <laughs> well, and and we'll of course, uh, and any information and, and all the links you send me, whether we get to them or not, uh, including the the link to that report, uh, will be available on the show post as well later at greenmajority.ca. Uh, but I, we have a, a bunch of stuff we want to talk to. As I said, you sent me a mountain of information. I want to try and get to as much of it as humanly possible. Um, so I sure, think, absolutely. Uh, I, I think the best place to start is actually the thing I want to talk about the least, not because it's not important, but just because I think it frames the conversation. So just really quickly, um, because I think it puts the rest of what we're going to talk about into context. Um, can you talk about that link that you sent, uh, the last one, which is about the uh, the, uh, the bloodbath continuing for the oil industry? So what's going on with the other part of the sector? Sure. So on the energy side, the, uh, the oil industry has had uh, a tough few years. Um, it has been a bloodbath financially. Uh, uh, readers can follow up on the link. But basically what's happened is that the uh, uh, you know, revenues for the super majors, the seven sisters are sometimes called, are down because the oil price is down. Uh, however, in the interest of propping up the stock price to keep up, you know, executive compensation with stock options and so forth, to keep up dividends, um, the oil companies are basically spending more money than uh, they're uh, earning in profits now. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that that's going to turn around quickly, even if the oil price goes up marginally or somewhat. Um, they've still committed themselves to these big fat dividends, uh, which are basically stealing money away from reinvestment uh, into their businesses. That's kind of a good thing overall because uh, um, that means they're going to find less oil, they're going to invest less in exploiting or extracting from new resources, and um, that should ultimately help more capital find its way into the renewable energy sector. Uh, basically, you know, for a guy like me, um, I grew up in the, I guess I was a teenager in the early 90s, uh, you know, first Kyoto Accord and so forth. This is a this is a this is a great sign where the um, 
the fossil fuel sector is no longer ridiculously profitable and uh, and now um, you know is is basically pushing uphill uh, to try and uh, make its way in the world and uh, uh, every every year every every year that this continues to happen is another year that uh, renewables can uh, continue to grow and continue to surge and develop even more advantages over uh, the fossil counterparts so the so the overall story here is that uh, is the renewables are continuing to penetrate uh, the Canadian uh, market, um, but of course the market itself fluctuates. So c- can you talk about the the growth of renewables relative to the overall uh, market itself, what, as far as the market share of this part of the uh, product line? Sure. So what uh, what's important to, to recognize is that uh, the energy usage in the world is roughly divided into three parts. Uh, one is electricity. Uh, one is transportation, one is heat. And um, on the on the transportation side, it's it's really slow in terms of switching over to batteries and so forth. Oil will have a role for, for many years to come. Uh, on the electricity side is where it's most exciting because uh, we have um, many coal plants being shut down. Uh, many of them have been replaced by natural gas, but still uh, renewables are growing. You know, Bill Gates is fond of quoting this uh, University of Manitoba professor of Backlab uh, Mill, I think it is. Uh, and this fellow has said that, oh, it takes like 30 years for new technology to become, to get 1% of uh, uh, electric generation around the world. And, you know, wind and solar have completely blasted pie bat and, and demonstrated that that's, uh, that's uh, simply not uh, um, a relevant uh, comparison to make anymore. So uh, growth has been continuing. It's it slowed a little bit as the industries have gotten larger. I'll just try and pull up the uh, the stats on um, total electricity uh, um, generation, but uh, they are fantastic. And the energy return on investment for solar and for wind is now better than the energy return on investment for new oil uh, discoveries, which is significant. It, it, again, demonstrates that all the momentum, all the improvements are in renewables, uh, sail, as it were. It's, it's a nice, great tailwind, and that will help us uh, transition, you know, hopefully as fast as possible, to a more renewable world as opposed to one which is based on and dependent on fossil resources. Now, Matthew, one of the interesting um, parts in your uh, reports and some of the articles that you linked, of course, was that uh, you know one of the countries you compared to was Norway, which has significantly better uh, penetration of their EV uh, market. And when I was reading a little farther down, one of the interesting things that I that I thought of that sort of related to that, because of course you go over that this is a, a product of a number of factors, but much having to do with their uh, policy, uh, they they placed a, 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 a levy, if you will, on, on, on gasoline. But it also has to do with the fact that there's they're, they're just different consumers. I mean, people buy different cars generally in uh, Europe. Um, and so one of the other things that stuck out for me reading a little bit farther down was that you were looking forward to the release of the uh, Ford F-150 as, a, as, an, F, a, a, as, an, F, as an EV vehicle. Uh, and and uh, I wanted to know um, how big an effect you think this might have on the market, uh, because like I'm, I'm the least car person I know, uh, and I know a lot of not very you know car people, uh, and even I know what the F-150 is because it's such an iconic vehicle. Um, do you think this is going to have a huge impact on the market? Sure. So just as a bit of background, Canada is probably sold its uh, 30,000 30, uh, um, plug-in electric vehicle uh, cumulatively, um, probably in February. And uh, that's 0.15% of our total overall electric fleet. 
um, plug-in electric vehicles and maybe 0.5, 0.6% of the new car sales in Canada. They're about 1% in Quebec and BC and about half a percent in Ontario and about 0% everywhere else. Um, Norway, meanwhile, which has something like you know, 15% of our population, has 135,000 plug-in cars. So they have like more than four times our number, four and a half times our number. 5% of all uh, cars on their roads now are plug-ins. And last year, something like 29% of all new car sales were plug-in electric vehicles. And you're right, it is a matter of policy. Norway used to be one of the poorest countries in Europe, poorest in uh, Western Europe, rather. And uh, so back in the day, being fairly collectivist-minded or community-minded, they, they said, well, we're going to put a luxury tax on cars and uh, because cars were luxury. And they found oil, and instead of, you know, lowering taxes and saying, hey, everyone, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to spend and, and uh, fritter away all this largesse, we're going to save some money, it'll give us options for later. And, uh, and what they've been able to do is they've said, well, look, you know, we, we want to export all the oil we make. We don't want to consume it because we can make more money selling it. And they have, there's an environmental interest as well. And so electric vehicles are exempt from the luxury tax and from the 25% GST, GST equivalent uh, that they have. And that has meant that Norway is a beautiful sort of a, a, a test bed or a beautiful um, case study where what happens if consumers have electric vehicles which are, you know, which are no more expensive than your average combustion vehicle. As, and, you know, surprise, surprise, people actually prefer the electric vehicles. There are some other advantages as well, but uh, I think that the main one is that it isn't, uh, it isn't a big uh, additional cost. Mm. And so um, they, they had some quite uh, prudent and long-lasting uh, uh, public policy. They've had this since the 1990s, well before any major car maker uh, was interested even in electric vehicles. Um, and uh, they've benefited from it. And now, you know, people, uh, BC Hydro, uh, here in, uh, in uh, British Columbia, I'm sure other utilities elsewhere in the world are trying to talk to them to say, hey, how do we figure out how to uh, integrate more electric vehicles, which means consulting jobs for their experts. It's, uh, it's a real uh, example of how being on the forefront of a technology allows you to generate a lot more benefits than, uh, than you would think initially. Yeah, never mind Justin Trudeau's recent comments that that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, but uh, uh, or when during Stephen's portion of the program. But uh, uh, you know, never mind all the hoopla that happened when uh, Justin Trudeau accidentally said a true thing, which is eventually we'll have to leave oil behind. I mean, they, if he came out and and said uh, anywhere near a reporter that cars were a luxury, they'd have burned him at the stake by now. Oh well, absolutely, and you know, perhaps we've had a little bit easier in Canada. We have been a relatively wealthy country. Uh, there is a bit of geography as well, um, you know, like yourselves. Uh, I'm I'm an urban progressive leaning. I'm lucky enough to be a professional. Uh, I have uh, relatives in you know the prairies in Saskatchewan. Very different world. They are F-150 drivers. And uh, linking back to the importance of the F-150, it'll come out with a plug-in version in 2020. Um, and the big the big opportunity there, I think, is that all of a sudden all these conservative leaning you know, gun rack type people, people who are totally not from my political or cultural tribe, you know, the exact opposite. Suddenly, hey, it's okay. You know, it's not just these urban professional, you know, fancy talking guys with Teslas. It's not these granola crunching Nissan Leaf drivers. Hey, it's like manly men who go out and shoot deer in the, in, in the uh, hunting season who also have plug-in vehicles. 
since, as you said, the F-150 is like head and shoulders, the number one selling vehicle in Canada, um, even if you get like a percent of them being uh, plug-in electrics, that's still a massive number. That would that would basically uh, make it uh, pretty much the best-selling uh, uh, electric vehicle in Canada. And again, that's just because the F-150 is so dominant. Mm. And and another uh, aspect there, and, and you'll have to correct me here because I'm 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 going from memory and I might be incorrect. So please do correct me if I'm wrong here. But in in many cases, uh, the electric version of a similar gas powered, um, I don't know if this is universal or just in some select cases, but actually just plain performs better because that was one. That's one of the common. Um, uh, sort of arguments against electric vehicles is well, I don't just for the sake of saving the planet, I don't want to have to have a wimpy car that doesn't perform. But in many cases, that is actually just false, is it not? Yes. So the uh, the I think electric cars suffer from what you might call the golf cart syndrome, where a lot of people first experience electric vehicles as golf carts, um, as very underpowered vehicles. Maybe they looked kind of funny. The original EV one from GM from the 1990s had like two doors, looked like a spaceship, it looked kind of plasticky, uh, not not what people think a car should look like. Um, but yes, electric vehicles are much better performing. Uh, they have more torque, they're more fun to drive. Uh, you do need to be able to plug in at home, but uh, even there, uh, there are policies that are being introduced which allow you even as an apartment dweller to be able to access uh, access electricity if you can, you know, pay for the routing of the charger so the rest of your strata or the, or the landlord doesn't uh, bear the burden of the cost. Uh, just to correct myself, uh, Ford would have to sell maybe 3 or 4% of their F-Series uh, trucks as uh, plug-in hybrids to be able to be, be the number one. Chevy Bolt is doing very well. Um, but, uh, but yes, it is, uh, they are better to drive. And uh, I think that you'll see in, in, in the, this, this coming wave is that all the luxury makers realizing that, first off, Tesla has has done the impossible, full due credit to them. It's kind of kicked them in the pants, and they said, hey, we need to have our own products. We have luxury vehicles. We can afford the extra money to put in a bunch of batteries and a hybrid system if we want. And so they do uh, They do strongly imagine that a lot of their customers will be, uh, will be choosing uh, electric vehicles, even without rebates, because it is a better drive, ultimately. Yeah, and so one of the last things, we, unfortunately, we only have about four. Uh, I can maybe stretch it to five because I left this conversation. Uh, but it's left. So I, I have two questions left, but I'd really rather spend the majority of it on the second one. So maybe, uh, maybe we can uh, we can we can try and uh, shoehorn the the first one as sort of as briefly as possible. But um, sure. because you drilled so deep into the data here, Matthew, um, you have uh, it broken down not just by manufacturer but by model. Uh, I'm very yep. interested to know um, if, from your analysis, uh, you know, is does there seem to be more of a trend of for people who are uh, Canadians who are making uh, EV purchases, does there seem to be more of a trend of brand loyalty or uh, or specific model loyalty? So it, it, what I mean is that like, do are, are all the top performing cars all a certain type of car from a variety of manufacturers, or is there one specific manufacturer which seems to be attracting the most interest? Um, okay, so clearly uh, Chevy is the dominant manufacturer on the. Uh on the Canadian market, they sell maybe a third of the uh, of the plug-in electric vehicles. Uh, Tesla also does quite well for itself. Um, there may be a, but, uh, not quite a quarter, maybe 20%, one in five. Uh, but I think the Chevy's dominance, and that dominance will increase as the Chevy Bolt 
has come out now that the Bolt is in Burnaby, not the Volt as in Vancouver. Um, the Bolt is the all-electric vehicle. It beat Tesla to the market with a sub-40,000 dollar um, uh, 200 mile or 300 uh, 380 kilometer range in Canada here. Um, they, I would have never thought growing up that General Motors would be like the leading environmentally friendly uh, maker of, of electrically uh, electric vehicles or environmentally friendly vehicles. Right? It was always Toyota or Honda or someone. Uh, but that that is the world we live in. It's not just Donald Trump as president. It's GM as the the, uh, the big leader in in Canada at least with the electric vehicles. Globally, it is Nissan. They've sold a quarter million lease, and they are fully committed to uh, electric vehicles as well. Um, a lot of that success uh, seems to come from one dealership in Quebec, which has had tremendous success. I'm sure you want to get on to your other questions, so perhaps I'll send another, a couple links that people can read to. Uh, but basically, the story is that if you get the salespeople really engaged and have them drive plug-in electric vehicles, they will become evangelists and they will feel willing and interested in spending the extra time it takes to go over with the customer what they need to have to buy an electric vehicle because they are so good. Yeah, awesome. No, yeah, we, unfortunately, we do. I, I wish I could take the rest of the show to talk about this. Uh, we, we technically are over time, but I re- you you made a couple really in our email exchange before the show. You made some a couple really sure. interesting comments about uh, Elon Musk. So I was wondering if you could just uh, just shoehorn the, that cautionary tale about uh, necessarily being a fanboy of uh, of Elon Musk personally, not necessarily the Tesla brand. Right. So I guess I'd, I'd uh, written in that you know Tesla has an amazing brand, and the challenge that it and the Elon Musk are going to face is that it's they aren't always living up to the brand, the brand expectations. It's kind of one of these situations where, you know, when you're growing up, you don't always want to meet your idols, your heroes, because they don't live up to what your imagination is. Um, um, Elon Musk has had some excellent uh, business dealings, and he has done some things which are wonderful for the progressive and environmentally interested community. Uh, but, you know, he is ultimately on his own side. It happens to coincide in some cases with the progressive interest, like I personally have. Uh, but in another case, uh, for example, right now he's embroiled in a uh, bit of a Twitter war with uh, an employee who talked about unionizing their California plant, and he kind of went off and said that this employee was like a UAW, United Auto Workers uh, agent, or paid by them. Um, really, not the kind of thing that you'd uh, you'd expect or want from a progressive champion. Which is just kind of uh, you want to reiterate that uh, you know, it's great to be a fan of electric vehicles. Um, but whoever your hero is, it's not good to, you know, wait for, you'll be waiting for Godot or waiting for the Messiah or waiting for your hero to save you. It's not that. It's like it's everyone doing their own work, you know, all these anonymous people who never get any credit, uh, who ultimately help uh, social movements and, you know, technology changes happen. Uh, we just don't want to, um, uh, we don't want to get carried away in our admiration for people who have done wonderful things because sometimes, those wonderful things might, you know, run against uh, our preferences as opposed to with our preferences. All right. Well, I, I appreciate your comments. And of course, everything you talked about, including uh, some of those links about Elon Musk, will be available on the show post uh, uh, after the program. You check that out at greenmajority.ca. Uh, uh, thank you again, Matthew, so much for your time and for your expertise on these issues. You're absolutely welcome. And I look forward to hearing the show with the after show. Uh, later this afternoon. Oh, we're going to have some fun. Don't you worry. Thanks again, Matthew. <laughs> All right. Yep. Uh, and now I'm going to pass it over. We're going to find out what we're going to listen to. Hi, it's Kai again, and we're going to be listening to Swimming. 
All right. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority uh, here on uh, uh, CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners all the way across the country and into the United States as well, and our international podcast listeners as well as Rabble.ca, National Observer, and all the other good independent media folks that are out there uh, doing good work and uh, uh, providing uh, additional points of view that we then comment on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they do the hard work. We just you know have fun with it. Uh, I ate up uh, a good portion of your time, Sabina. I do apologize. I'm going to go right to you now. Go ahead. Thank you, uh, Darren. So I'm going to kind of try to cover a little bit of Stefan's 208-part series on ways to fight. Um, so there was two articles today that I'm going to be covering, and one of them was from The Guardian, and it talks about... So this Guardian article is about the last stand, water protectors return to Standing Rock as drilling set to begin. So I know that we've covered the Dakota Access Pipeline a couple of times or more than a couple of times on the show. But uh, one of Donald Trump's first access president was a presidential memorandum to expedite the Dakota Access Pipeline. And thus on Wednesday, the Army Corps formally granted the pipeline the final permit it required to drill under the Missouri River. And the spokesperson uh, for, for the company said that we, be, uh, we plan on beginning uh, on drilling immediately. And the Guardian writes that, a lot of people have returned in order to fight this and huddled inside tents, teepees, and other shelters scattered throughout camps near the construction site. Indigenous and environmental activists on Wednesday said that they would not give up their battle despite the government's aggressive efforts to greenlight construction. So many, so many of these water protectors have, have returned to fight the $3.7 billion pipeline, and they're currently planning demonstrations, prayer walks, and other resistant efforts. However, Trump, who has invested, who, according to The Guardian, has invested in energy transfer partners and receives donations from the corporation's CEO, ordered the Army Corps to cancel the lengthy environmental review and fast-track the permit. This also means that this week's announcement, uh, the corporation, as I said, may start drilling immediately. And uh, a lot of the people that are at Standing Rock right now, are they feel really cheated, hurt, and afraid. And this is why right now is one of the biggest times to show support. Um, one of the comments from um, Messia Bursiaga Hamid uh, who is uh, one of the water protectors there, says, I feel like I've made a commitment to the land and the water, and I found a lot of soul family here. Uh, this is about our safety in this country as people of color and as people of indigenous to the land. If the water gets sick, everybody gets sick. And I think it's really important not to lose not to lose sight of the fight at this moment, and especially because there could be uh, legal battles to be fought here. And I and I hope that um, us as the public and people start to really fight against this and. Uh, uh, show show our support. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's easy to to lose our sight on, on on something like this, especially when it feels like it's already lost. I think to some extent, you know, it's very easy to be like, all right, well, you know, dust your hands up, uh, lost that battle. What's the next one? Especially when we're not being the ones directly impacted by any shape or form. You know, especially you know, us here in, in in Toronto or in, even though in much of Canada, to be honest, don't aren't aren't the ones going to feel the if this one like of river this one river or, or watershed even gets polluted it's not going to affect us so it's very easy to sort of be like all right well you know we could have won that battle but lost it because because trump got elected so let's move on uh but i think it's you're right it's it's that that kind of attitude comes from a place of, of our own privilege to to avoid that conversation um and and it's it, it should be understood that 
every that these are the these are the things we have to be doing now. This is what resistance looks like to some extent. Yeah, and I, I think a really other important thing to to note is that this is you know and, uh, you know I'm not going to spend a bunch of time Obama bashing, but this is this is one of the things Obama got wrong, right? Which is that every single he was trying to he wanted that appearance of bipartisanship, and he refused to acknowledge the obvious truth. And it's not obvious truth because I'm saying it is. I'm saying it's the obvious truth because the Republicans said that's what they were going to do, which was stonewall everything. And this is the situation we see with ourselves, with the current administration and the oil companies, and frankly, you know, f- unfortunately, fifty-one percent of the voters a lot of the time uh, is that they they don't they they've made up their minds and they're not going to waver, right? So if you keep seeding fights, right, because you think you can't win them, uh, you're just saying that if they, if we get pushed hard enough, they'll back off, right? If you push them hard enough, they'll back off. If we push them back hard hard enough, we'll back off. And one of the interesting things to note is that the the women's march and the movement surrounding it uh, was was immediately compared, even by the mainstream media, I think the mainstream media might be the first to make this comparison, to the Tea Party and say, ah, the left now has a Tea Party. Do you know why? The, the, first of all, it should be noted that the Tea Party is a tiny, minuscule dot in the ocean of the actual number of people yeah. compared to to the progressive movement that's supporting things like the Women's March and, and the opposition to Trump. Uh, but the reason they had so much power for such a disproportionately tiny number of people is because they never ceded and they never gave up. And it doesn't matter if it took years. They complained and complained and complained and complained. And they eventually got like 15 senators elected. They got all sorts of policy. They had people coming out and doing their bidding. Why? Because they never, ever, ever backed down. And that's the lesson we need to learn. Yeah, and, 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 they, and they fought the, the small battles. Yeah, that was that was like they didn't they weren't just, you know, they they showed up to these rallies, but they were also sort of fighting these sort of much smaller little pieces that that did the different things. Uh, but sorry, Sabina, uh, you uh, please carry on. <laughs> yeah. So basically, not only are these types of uh, projects, I, I think I think one of the main things here to note is that it shouldn't be so easy for a political uh, got for for a government to just completely change huge infrastructure pro- projects because this is a project that will not only last uh, during Trump's presidency this will last for a really long time and that environmental degradation will last a lot longer than Trump is in office so I I think that uh, these types of these types of large infrastructure projects should have a mandated environmental protection uh, environmental assessment and it should go uh, for as long as it as possible and um it shouldn't be there should be no executive presidential order because this will not only last through his presidency yeah and you're looking at a it's a, it's the timelines are all we've you talked about this about the timelines of environmental projects versus not is is always difficult mm-hmm. and i think uh something similar here in canada the the Tsilkotin nation is fighting a battle against the Seiko mines who have been relentless in pursuing a 1.5 billion dollar open pit copper and gold mining development in the Caribou region. So the provincial government actually approved this development in 2020 in 2010, but it was shut down by the federal government partly because of the fight that the First Nation community was holding. And uh, one of the main reasons for this disapproval of the project was because of the environmental impact assessment and because the mining company wanted to drain Fish Lake, who has, who is very large and supports a lot of um, a lot of white wildlife, and wanted to turn this into um, a tailing pond. 
So this exploration would include a 50-person work camp, 367 test pits, 47 hectares of new disturbance roadblocks and seismic line testing. And this is adamantly opposed by the Tsilkotin. And in January, a uh, letter uh, by the chief, Russell Myers Ross, asked why the province was, would consider approving more drilling and damage for a project that cannot be built. And so it was really interesting, this article by D Small Canada, because uh, Taseko has been playing... Um, has been playing with the government of BC saying that um, this is BC territory. Why should you let the federal government overturn your approval of of this of this uh, economic uh, prosperity type of development that's going to include 5.5 billion dollar increase in revenues and 71,000 jobs? Always the same type of um, arguments. It's kind of economy versus the environment. And really, what I would love to see is where these kinds of these two things come together and. The environment, the economy is part of our environment. And if you turn this fish lake into a tailing pond, then that's going to destroy so much land. Yeah, just really quickly, people get wowed by big numbers really easily. Um, But when we're talking about like federal level things, all of the numbers are big. So don't let it, don't let a billion or a million or any of those numbers that that's not rel- that shouldn't be your trigger. Second of all, whenever somebody's talking about numbers and they're using big numbers like that in this sort of a context and they don't mention the other side of the equation, they're probably trying to deceive you, right? So what the what what do I mean by that? Well, someone say, well, uh, you know, like we're going to create you know three hundred jobs by this pipeline, and you hate jobs because you're against the pipeline. Well, what else would, if you're not building the pipeline, what would you have done? How many jobs would that have created? What is the relative? What is the average income of those employees? What is the actual economic benefit? If they've not given you any of that information, they're probably trying to deceive you. And this is just another example of um, economic, quote unquote, prosperity against um, First Nations rights. And I think... I think seeing this, for example, what's been happening is that Taseco Mines has been lobbying to the provincial government in order to continue this project. And um, the Tsilkotin uh, national government has been saying that we, we're we talking to the federal government and that's why we're trying to oppose oppose this decision. And it really all goes back to what we keep talking about, the environmental impact assessment, how that should be quantified if if the only world we live in is that economic quantification equal is above all maybe we should go past this intrinsic value and no we don't want to quantify these trees and waters and everything but we should put a value on them and say look this value has um is a lot more than your 71,000 jobs i don't know where these jobs mm-hmm. are coming from if it's a uh, 50 man um Mine. Project. Yeah. Exactly. The, well, and I think the other thing here that, that is sort of so commonly missed uh, in this conversation um, is when you're talking about uh, this sort of relationship between sort of indigenous uh, peoples and their land in the federal government, everything like that, is that there's a – is that the agreement we have is to treat them as their own nation. That is the agreement that's set up. Uh, and so, while earlier I was more than while, while earlier I, I point out the, the importance of some sense understanding that politicians can be acting in fear, uh, and that can lead to sort of misunder not great statements uh, or, or statements that might be misunderstood or misconstrued in some ways, or maybe just like seen in a more negative light than necessarily were intended to be. I also think it's important to understand what they're look at what they're doing um, because that's what actually matters. And so, especially on especially on the indigenous file, the Trudeau government has been has been hammered. Uh, uh, because they, 
it, it, it's sort of the almost the it's the epitome of their nice talk no action kind of space um, and if you're going because if you're going to say that you're going to you know repair uh, our, you know the the damages of our colonial history uh, you have to then also actually take action to do that or else you you know it's the same thing as all as, as nice tweets uh, you know if it's not a action until you do something and so and so it's these sort of projects in which the, you know, the federal government has the ability to stand up and help and truly treat these indigenous uh, perspectives as a nation-to-nation deal. Yeah, I just want to throw in really quickly because I just confirmed uh, yesterday, actually, Stefan, we will be having uh, Bear Standing Tall, uh, also known in Toronto as Rocky Carter, who's the uh, the owner and operator of Bear Standing Tall and Associates, uh, coming into the program on March 3rd. So that'll be very interesting. He provides a number of services uh, for his business, one of which... <clears throat> I've heard him describe as essentially like how to talk to First Nations people. And at first blush to some folks, uh, that may seem sort of like like a funny statement. But the the reason it's very critical is because uh, decision making in First Nations communities operates uh, very differently. And if you're not aware of these sort of cultural nuances, you can frequently, um, even with the best of intentions, um, do you know anywhere from unproductive uh, all the way down to offensive. And so if we're really looking forward to move forward, and both from the environment movement as uh, working with First Nations folks as partners, uh, or as the government or as a, as a company trying to engage uh, with these, um, I, I think all, all folk, all listeners will find that interview very valuable. I just wanted to flag that, that that's that was confirmed yesterday. Yeah. I think I think it's also really important to understand that in in matters such as sustainability or trying to be environmentally um, responsible, people have to understand that not everybody speaks the same language as them. Uh, if you come from a scientific background, no one is going to care about your background unless you're able to talk about it in a way that's relevant to others. And if you're trying to um, have a partnership with First Nations communities, they're not going to care about your numbers and your things. Like they want to know how how you how this partnership is going to mutually benefit them, if it is even. Well, and then also there's a level of of, of a protecting uh, of protecting the land because that's the land they're living on and have lived on for centuries. And so it's one thing. It doesn't you know there's a there's a level of, of short-term thinking uh, that comes to we can create 70,000 jobs. That 70,000 jobs, even if it cr- exists, only exists for at best that helps that one generation. Sure, but you know, there's a seven generations concept which just is not a part of, of economic like, – economic thinking is one quarter, uh, which is three, three months. You know, this is a totally different time scale of conversation. And so unless you're having this conversation from a base need of time scales, you're, not, you're talking past each other. Yeah, it makes me think of that old episode, Stefan. I think we ended up calling uh, "Just Move." I don't know if you remember that one, but it was—it mean, it was basically—it was basically like that idea, which was, you know, what are you guys stupid? We're offering you a bunch of money. It's like, yeah, but we're actually thinking beyond the next five minutes, and it's not just like I think it's often perceived as. Uh, Oh, you know, stupid First Nations people, they don't understand that with this money they could do X. And really, it's actually the other way around. They're thinking beyond, you know, the, the, they're thinking farther out than the end of their noses. And that's how they're coming to these decisions. And, and some First Nations communities do decide that it's in their best interests, and some don't. And, but at the end of the day, those decisions have to be respected. And I, and I think it's important that a lot of the times when these proposals go through, they're proposals that go through from the company to, to the government or to whoever it is that they need to do this proposal to, and they overestimate the economic um, 
benefits and they under underestimate the environmental um, non-benefits. For example, there's been lots of lots of news articles that say that uh, the oil sands tailing ponds and mining tailing ponds emit toxins to the atmosphere at much higher levels than it's reported, and all of these and a lot of these toxins are carcinogens. So that's another that's another thing that you have to think about. Other than um, environmental or social, it's also the health of the people and generations to come. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That's it for the Green Majority main program. If you're listening to the podcast, we'll be right back with the bonus show where I'm going to talk about the loss of jobs as we know, the onslaught of uh, mechanization of the workforce. Uh, If you can download that at greenmajority.ca or on iTunes. But that's it, folks. Have a good Green Week. Thanks so much for listening and take care. That's it for the regular part of the show. We're going to go now to our bonus show where we talk a little bit about a real issue and then it bleeds into a really fun conversation about astrophysics and future problems. We start, however, with the takeover of robotics and what it means for the jobs industry. Enjoy the bonus show. If you can, please also consider, maybe now, maybe later, becoming a Green Majority member. You can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Dollars a minimum, you can do that, and it just is a really nice way to just give us a heads up and say, hey, you know, I wish I could do more, but uh, I'm right there with you. Um, it uh, just really makes us feel good to see your name pop up there, but if you can, you can do $5, 10 15 $20 a month. Really would help support us get the show out. Please consider doing that today. Other than that, please enjoy the bonus show. Welcome to the bonus show. I am joined in studio uh, by our volunteer tech, Kay, as well. Sabina is here. Kay may or may not jump in. We'll see what happens. But Sabina, pressure's on you. You're going to have to talk here because uh-uh. I can't talk by myself. <laughs> so I'm going to really quickly introduce uh, the topic. Um, and it's one that we've talked about before, but there's an article that came out specifically identifying it. But I'm uh, due to my inability to have an internet signal and, and me forgetting to flag it ahead of time. I don't actually have the article to look at. So I'm going to have to go from memory. Apologies. But it will be linked. For your own information, the title really tells you all you need to know uh, is for, like conceptually to be able to talk about this as a concept because it's not exactly a new idea. Uh, and that is that uh, a Chinese factory replaces 90% of human workers with robots and its production uh, rises by 250%. Defects then also drop by 80%. So the the idea here is not that the increasing mechanization is uh, is killing jobs as it would be put by Trump. Um, it's that it's happened very quickly and right now, uh, and that's not even really news. But that's the sort of thing that people are like. We're not really planning for this, and I think that's the before you even get into any of the like my ideas for how we should plan around this. Um, the fact is that this is not something that's being talked about. Have you outside of like a, a, a science journal? Or like a report on China, like it's from a national context. Have you ever seen anything, Sabina, talking about this issue anywhere? No, I I haven't really seen anything or anything talking about this issue. But what really interests me, I've done um, a lot of work on supply chains of like major companies and human rights abuses in these supply chains. Not a lot of work, but I've looked into this this issue, and I find that. Right now, all of these factories are not only being really environmentally um, unsustainable to the communities around them because of all of the toxins that are released from the factories, but also um, workers' rights and workers' pay and all of the social issues that are happening in these factories are huge. But the implication of what it would mean to then change these people whose only livelihood depends on these jobs and to change that and now say, okay, you know what? We're still going to destroy your environment. We're still going to have this factory here, um, but you're not going to have any work and uh, you've only been doing this for the past 20 years. 
and so now go ahead and go into the street and thanks thanks for you know your time i think this is the ultimate i mean you come in you basically performed all of these human rights abuses and then you say all right now we're not going to do that anymore we're going to be more social and more productive and well, whatever and, and more more importantly i would i would address that slightly and say if you don't deal with the bad conditions we've offered you then we'll simply replace you with robots like it's it's far more insidious than even just like that right it's a threat and it's it's used as a threat to keep people from euthanizing, <laughs> interesting slip of the tongue there, uh, from unionizing uh, or, or other things. And this has happened, I mean, American, uh, a lot of the people that came in and were meeting with Trump were saying this very thing. You know, if we don't crush the unions, we'll simply replace your jobs with robots, um, to which I kind of call bullshit because uh, if it was in their economic best interest to do that, they would have already done it. I don't think they were holding back because – uh, uh, because they're concerned about people's jobs. So I kind of think that's a bit of an empty threat. I think it's just that they're not they're, th I think they're already automating as fast as they possibly can. And they're not really holding anything back out of, out of protection for the workers. But, um, it, yeah, I mean, where it sits right now, it, the only traction I've seen is, is companies threatening this to then get people to accept really bad conditions. Exactly. And, and I think you really hit the nail right on the head there when you said that these companies don't care about workers rights and maybe I can't speak for all companies, but in general, that's what we've seen so far on the on on the ground. And so they're not they're not stopping this automation thing because it's for the workers. They're doing it because um, technology isn't just perfectly there yet. And right now, these companies are doing as they they're automating as much as they can. And seeing this article and seeing all of the different types of jobs that can be automated and and increased productivity, which is basically every company's bottom line is increased productivity. If you can do that with increasing quality as well, increased profits. There you go. I mean, I've just sold a billion dollar idea to a company. Well, one interesting example we've seen here in Toronto, and and, uh, and I have to admit, and some people are going to write me angry emails about this, but occasionally on a Friday night, if I've had a beverage or two, I will have a McDonald's hamburger. I know, hate <laughs> me. Email your hate to Darren at greenmajority.ca, but it happens. Just real talk here. That's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I've noticed... Uh, when I do that, I can, first of all, I can't do that anymore because of my health issues. Uh, it now, aside from crushing my soul, also crushes my guts, and I, I end up with about 48 hours of really intolerable pain. So I, I no longer eat at McDonald's, and it's not a moral choice. It's a physical one. Um, but when I was there or when I would pass by, of course, you know, and you can't go anywhere in a major city without passing a few of them, I've noticed that they've added a number of these automated ordering machines, right? And this is something, uh, you know, large uh, cor multinational corporations are usually the first to adopt this because they have the largest purchasing power, so they can buy these machines before other companies can because they can purchase them in the tens of thousands or in the millions. Um, and But one of the things I've noticed is that they actually haven't – there aren't any less employees. And all the, the immediate effect of this is simply is that they're they're able to turn over covers faster by by not needing it, uh, more cashiers. But the, but those staff are now been displaced into the kitchen to to produce the food for this faster thing. Now, please don't mistake me. I'm not saying that robotics is not going to threaten jobs. It is, uh, but it it isn't yet in the way that it's going to soon. Is so it's actually my cautionary story is actually the other way around. I'm not saying that this shouldn't be a threat. It's that it's we're seeing the beginnings of it, and this means you know the roboticizing the hamburger making, for instance, in this one example, is next, uh, and this means like the time to come up with a plan to deal with this is immediately because this is happening now. This is happening right now, not not even ten years from now. It's happening today. Yeah, I completely agree. This is, I mean, um, I think that that. <laughs> 
if you were to automate all of these jobs, I think that you would definitely need to have that standard salary. Like, what what is it called again? Um, guaranteed sorry. minimum that's income. That's it. That's it. The guaranteed minimum income. I think, honestly, the only way to overcome this automation of jobs and, and uh, a lot of these people going out, out of business would be this guaranteed income so that they can at least survive. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and the thing that that's sort of where I have a bit of, I think a potentially controversial opinion on this, which okay. is I actually want them to go ahead and do it as fast as possible. And, automation. and I have a, to uh, the automation. And, okay. and I think that this, um, is a, is a, it, I'm sort of following the, the ethos of the ripping the bandaid off sort of mentality, uh, or, or concept, uh, which is that if it happens slowly, um, it's the frog boiling in the water thing, which is that public policy won't be changed because it's slow and it's just a few thousand workers at a time. And it will take a very, very long time. Like uh, the, the streets will fill up with homeless for quite some time before it becomes a crisis and major political changes have to be made. Uh, whereas if this happens all at once – and there's just out outrage when tens of millions of people lose their jobs overnight across North America. Um, that's where you're going to see swift political action. And the I mean, the, the, the bottom line is if the only reason these people have jobs is because we need them to have jobs, like if it's a self-fulfilling, like, well, jobs because jobs, um, then there's something wrong with your system. And that doesn't mean that this is an indictment of, aha, see, I knew it. This is an indictment of capitalism. No, no, no. We're not talking about anything about that. What we're talking about is that this is the changing reality of the times. And I, I really just don't want to see the world of jobs go the way of Napster, which is, or Metallica, which is I'm going to, you know, kick and scream for as long as possible and do as much as damage because I'm used to the world being this old way and I'm simply going to refuse to accept that it's changing and meanwhile do tons of damage. I kind of just want them to come to the realization, okay, we need to completely overhaul how we do this, right? And this has massive, massive implications on a number of areas, right? We're talking about hundreds of millions, potentially, you know, billion people being out of work. Uh, this is not something that like even just providing a guaranteed minimum income is going to fix. This is going to require a complete overhaul of an economic system. But for environmental purposes, I think this needs to happen, right? Yeah. Like just look at the one thing. Just look at the defects, right? 80% reduction in defects. All of those defects go into the garbage. They're not recycled. They don't reuse them. Like all of this waste, like yes, we need to reduce our consumer culture, but while we are – living in a consumer culture, we need to reduce the, or we need to increase the efficiency of that and reduce the waste as fast as possible. And this is a really good way to do it. There's a lot of benefits to this. If we can just figure out this putting a billion people out of work problem, yeah. all, everything else is an upside. Yeah. And also another benefit of it, if, um, it's also companies can't just come to the government and say, we want to open this, this mining pit here, let's say, because it's going to create 71,000 jobs. That that jobs thing and that economy thing goes out of the goes out of the equation when you're when you're automating everything and then all the profit basically just goes to the company or the government and people are left with. But if it is automated, that that money could actually go to the people in this uh, minimum living wage type of situation. Yeah. Now this is the bonus show, so we get to have a little bit of fun here. It's not the main <laughs> show. Uh, Kay, I said I wasn't going to throw you in this, under the bus, but I feel like I have to. I have. I need an, an astrophysicist's point of view here for a second. Um, I, totally oddball. I just want to know what is your opinion based on this. Um, of the idea of – I've been a big fan of science fiction my whole life. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that you probably are too. She's nodding at me. Um, what do you feel about – so I don't know if you remember the movie Moon. 
What do you feel about concepts like uh, strip mining uh, non-life-bearing worlds? Does that does that bother you from an environmental point of view, or do you, th- or from a scientist point of view, or do you think, well, as long as there's no life there, like strip mine away? What, how do you feel about that? I think it's a really difficult question because it's it's a question of whether value is only held in things that are living, or in if value is inherent in resources. And I think. I mean, obviously, if you have the choice of a a living planet, like a planet that holds life and a planet that does not, I would definitely choose the one without life because life is valuable. But at the same time, I think it's kind of almost a sort of disrespect if you're you're saying, here's a resource and its only purpose is my exploitation and my profit, which I think is sort of an irresponsible way to look at these things. And one of the, I have a small follow up as well, just while we're being super nerdy here for a second. Uh, so if we did start strip mining the moon, let's say, or not the moon, uh, let's 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 go a little farther out. Let's say that it becomes possible to strip mine Mars in some near future. Um, when we're talking about things like one of the most likely things you're going to probably mine, I would imagine, would be metals, right? Valuable metals. Um, and you could, you know, do away with all sorts of environmental regulations because it's like not on a planet where humans need to live. So whether or not we think this is right, that's probably likely to at least come up, if not happen. Um, but you know, as we saw when they, the Chinese built Three Gorges Dam, um, that uh, actually affected the spin rate of the Earth by like a fraction of a second because it, of all the water displacement. Uh, was something I was reading in Scientific American. So it was like a hundredth of a millionth of a fraction of a second. But technically, that the amount of water all balked up after that dam was built, you know, affected the length of a day by you know a hundred thousandth of a second or something like that. So is there is there a point? Would we have to think about like if we're really strip mining, you know, another world at really a large scale? Would we have to start like like shipping off stuff into space to counterbalance this so we don't screw up the spin of the earth? I mean, absolutely. Like if you think about it, if you're if you're strip mining something, you're actually changing the mass of a planet which could, which could definitely change the orbit and, you know, you're like, "Oh, I'm going to get a bunch of metal and make a bunch of profit and suddenly you've got a massive, you know, planet or asteroid crashing into earth and you're like, that's not really what I wanted." So it's it's absolutely a consideration that you have to think about. If you're exporting materials, changing the mass, changing the orbit, you could create some serious problems that are a lot larger than, you know, just how much money you're making. Right. Can we can we even like imagine as a, just as a group here? Can we imagine a day when like say climate change has been solved or say it hasn't and we've just you know we've just begun to deal with that new reality and the new sort of climate change of 2065 is you know stop strip mining the the moon because it's going to affect its orbit and it's going to like pull us out of the goldilocks ring or something like that i mean oh man i'm just i'm super geeking out right now but like i don't know i don't i mean i don't look forward to that but at the same point it's like it's a it's a far more interesting problem to have i think (laughs) it's one i look forward to be if there's gonna be a problem i think that that would be a more interesting problem than the one we have now (laughs) i agree it's you know taking it a little bit out of this world is always an interesting way to deal with things yeah i think i think what's for for me i actually wouldn't have a problem like just going and mining like a neither would i that's why i find this so interesting you know it's just like the to me, it's just like whatever. It's just a rock. <laughs> oh my god! I don't know who's like out Ooh. there. That's like a Mars fan that is just going to. Oh no! I just, I just, I just raised. I just managed to raise the temperature on this conversation. So, uh, so let's bring life back into the picture here. Maybe we'll end on this, but we'll see how how far this goes. But so let's say that we start strip mining Mars, say for some precious metal. Say, say we find some superconductive metal uh, that was not found on Earth, and it becomes uh, superconductive and ultralight, and it now 
now becomes like this incredibly valuable building material for, uh, say, spaceships and all sorts of like ultralight, uh, strong density uh, uh, applications. That's the sort of the, the, the holy grail of, of <laughs> material science right now is stuff like that, right? Um, and it turns out that after we've invested enough money to go build a Mars base and we have a Mars you know, mining colony – that it turns out that there's some like bacterium. It's not sentient. It's it's like maybe just converts you know to one element into another, uh, and it's the only a mile down. But we find it there. What do we do? Does that is that become like the the sort of the outrage of 2065? I, I don't I don't know. And I, and I feel like. I feel like, of course, like of course, scientists would go up and, and study that. There's no question. I mean, there's 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 zero chance that if we got that far, that people would just say, ah, who cares about life? You know, independent life developing on another planet. We're just going to forget about it. So of course, they'd go sample it and they'd go study it. But would that do anything, Sabina, to your decision to like feel free to strip mine Mars? If say we we got some and we didn't wipe it out of existence, does it doesn't doesn't does a you know a single uh, celled replicating bacterium that converts matter into other matter? Uh, worthy does make it does that invalidate our, our multi hundred trillion dollar mining operation? I think I'm going to be the villain in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be that really rude, like really crazy material scientist that's just like get that superconductor, <laughs> <laughs> destroy the bacteria. No, I mean I think that I think that. Um, what would probably happen is that no one would care about that bacteria. Like it would be some scientist going to study it, probably take it, and then like relocate it somewhere else or something. Like I don't know. I think that from from like the history of our world so far, life has not really been as precious as profit. So <laughs> I think <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the villain, but I'm just saying the point of view that if we did invest in like colonizing Mars, like creating this new like new new mining structure where it's completely automated and we're taking all of these metals out of there and there was this new life, I probably would think that there would be a lot of uprise, but yeah. the corporation would go ahead. Protest signs from the future. <laughs> yeah. uh, as we know how yeah. scientists like to name things. We'll see signs from the future saying, you know, save, you know, stop Mars mining, save species X1735644. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have a lot of very angry astrobiologists out there. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it would be a direct conflict between something that has been the focus of scientific search for so long. And, you know, once you find it, there's always going to be an obstacle, obviously, but a very expensive obstacle. I, I agree with Sabina. Like I, I think the scientists wouldn't hold out that long before the profit kind of overwhelmed them. Yeah, we already have a moon base there, though, and we're already shipping material back and forth. So I think we would immediately see a mass, uh, uh, e- even just from a site like a scientific discovery team, uh, colonization of scientists there, and and that would probably spur a, a rather large base there. Uh, because you already have all the infrastructure, you already have everything moving back and forth. Uh, no doubt, a number of scientists would would take that journey to go and, and study it. So, the, I think the place we'll maybe leave it off for this week is if someone can finish this joke for me, I'm going to figure out a way to fig- come up with a prize to give you. So, a uh, material scientist, uh, you know, uh, uh, a material scientist, an astrobiologist, and an environmental ethics uh, sort of like philosopher walk into a bar, uh, finish that joke, and I'll find a prize to give you. I think that's all we have for this week. Thank you so much, uh, Kay and Sabina, for joining me. Thank you for listening, the listener, to the Green Majority Bonus Show, and we'll see you real soon.